G'day everybody and welcome to another bloody movie podcast. I am Sean Coates. Thank you so much for listening to me today. N- listening to me and my guest and now my podcast. Mm. We're off to a flyer here. I mean, we're, we're still in po- post-MIF depression, I guess. Yeah, I guess Eric- so. Yeah, I'm joined by Eric Tisher. He's pretty much the co-host of this show now, but like, I- I'm making him work for that title though. Oh, well, I mean, what's my competition? You, no, not, you've got no competition, but I'm just making you... You've got to work hard to get your name on the, uh, on the, little, um, on, on the little logo, mate. Oh, fair enough. I, I'll, I'll work hard. It wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, bother me if my name's up there or not. I mean, I don't really like to plug anything. Yeah, well, as we said at the top, uh, we are in post-Myth depression, even though I saw Black Klansman last night and was let down a little bit, but it's still okay. But we're not here to talk about those movies. We are here to talk about these fine, prestige festival films that we saw at the Melbourne International Film Festival, which ended last Sunday. I was going to do a blog pod format where I was going to do like almost daily or every couple of days, do episodes like straight before the movie, straight after the movie, recordings about the movie, like what I saw, what I thought about it, like immediate thoughts. But uh, I did it for the first couple of days and it just, it was too tiresome to keep track of. So I still have some recordings. I may release that at some point down the line. Eric is in a couple of those. Yeah. Um, they were a bit difficult to record just because we're making our way back home and yeah. the train stations. Are <laughs> we we very literally, loud. yeah, we literally um, were recording a podcast walking from the comedy theatre to Acme. And uh, we got a couple of weird looks uh, just talking into a microphone uh, while walking down the street at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, we are here for a full and comprehensive wrap-up of the Melbourne International Film Festival. Eric, how many films did you end up seeing? Uh, well, I ended up seeing 14 new 14. films. But you could slap on that I watched uh, six uh, additional Nicolas Cage Because, films. yes, Eric... Oh, actually, five. That uh, is correct, because Eric went to the Cageathon, which was an overnight Nicolas Cage marathon, which I wanted to go to, but it was just it, it was just it oh. was too much for me. I I don't think I could have done it. Mate, you really you really missed out. Like it was it was probably the most the best thing that I went to. It was very entertaining. I saw thirty one films over the eighteen well technically I didn't go to a film for the first two days of the festival, so I saw thirty one films over sixteen days. And you know what? We're going to talk about all of them today. This may be. This is probably going to be split up into two, maybe even three parts. I don't know. Definitely two, though. Maybe the runtime of this podcast could be longer than that of Season of the Devil. Ooh, yeah, we'll get to that one later. Maybe, maybe if we just do a huge podcasting marathon, or like, a, yeah, like we'll a podcast, the podcast in opera. Oh, <laughs> that would. I mean, and four hours of that. Mm. Oh, people! I think uh, we might be breaking new ground. Though. We'd be breaking new ground, and we'd be we'd be technically classified as unlistenable if that would happen. More, <laughs> more, more so than we already are now. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> All right, but we're going to get straight into it because we have a lot to talk about. And one of the films that we both saw, one of the first films we both saw together, was uh, the new film from uh, Argentine-born French provocateur. Edge Lord, whatever. Well, the well, that's a good way to put it. it. <laughs> uh, uh, Gaspar Noé, Edge Lord. Yeah, he's, he's an Argentine style over substance filmmaker. Likes to make his films in French. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this Gaspar Noé is the man in question, mm. and Climax, his new film. We both saw. 
on in over the first couple of days, I have a written review, which is at the time of this recording, now up on moviebabblereviews.com. So please go read that. Um, most of my thoughts you can find out in that one. But Eric, start with you. What did you think of well, Climax? Well, it's interesting um, because... I, I, didn't, I don't think it's a bad film. I don't think it's great either. I think it's good for what it is. Strangely enough, I don't think Gaspar Noe was trying to do, make something profound. It was like he was trying to get an experience, capture an experience uh, in in his film, um, which is strange because it seems a little bit um, seems a little small scale for Gaspar Noe. Or at least like um, he, he tries to be very ambitious. I mean, he made that three D sex movie. Uh, was it was love in 3D? Was it? Well, I think it was shot in a th- with a 3D camera. Oh yeah. wow! Um, All right, I should just preface that this is my first film that I've seen from Gaspar Noé. So, uh, and Eric, you've seen all five five of his films? I've seen everything but love. Okay, so you've seen I've Stand Alone, have you? Yes, I, I Stand have. Alone. Yeah, okay. So yeah, it's in, it's interesting for him to do something uh, simpler. Uh, well, I mean. Yeah, a lot, a lot simpler than, or a lot less ambitious to what he would usually do. I think Sean, you mentioned or you told me that he made this film in four months. Yes, that so including shooting the and entire the entire production process, including writing the script, which I kind of think is a huge problem. But I'll get to that in a moment. Well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't much of a script. It seems highly improvised. Yeah, that that's the problem. But here's okay. We'll just mention that. But yeah, the entire production of this film was just four months, from the script to pre-production to principal photography to the entire post-production took just four months, which is insane mm. when you think about it. But yeah, as we said, like this is a largely improvised film. And that's where I think is a big flaw here because a lot of the people, I think Sophia Brutella, like I'm not sure what the exact percentage is, but I think it might be just Sophia Brutella and a couple of others. They're the only actors in this film. Mm. And I get it. This is a film about dance. So you need to hire a lot of professional dancers and their dances are amazing. Like that is the best part of this film. The dance sequences are absolutely spectacular, oh, especially the opening to an instrumental of uh, the techno track Supernature is mm. just mind blowing. It's it was- very, it's it's very good. I mean, the choreography and the the camera movement is just crazy. Mm. It's all one take as well. It's all one take, and um, it doesn't it doesn't really ever seem to be sort of off centered. Like everything no. seems to be all the figures seem to be composed quite well in a in a and a format that looks visually appealing, aesthetically appealing, and uh, just to just to capture that while everyone's moving and and the camera's moving as well, it's quite a feat. N- never loses any momentum as well. That no. entire sequence, it just it's it. And this is another thing with this film. There's two types of reactions that I had to this film. It was, oh my god, this scene is still going. This is awesome. This is amazing. How did they do this? And the other one is, oh my god, this is still going. Fucking, I get it. Move on. God. <laughs> But yeah, getting back to what I was saying about the whole thing like being improvised, there's that incredibly obnoxious scene where they are all like sitting around drinking. It quite it, it's like two two of the dancers each are having a conversation to each other mm. and it's all about like their sex life and like, you know, who they find attractive. Oh, this chick's hot. I really want to bang I, her. Uh, uh, that was unfucking bearable for me. I'm like it, and yes, the actors it's improvised, but yeah. all of these people are dancers. And they aren't really that good for actors, and that's really, really comes through in this in this sequence. And yeah, I was just like, get like in this entire sequence, I almost wanted to yell out, "Get down to fighting, get down to fucking, or get down to dancing for God's sake!" I don't know, because I, I mean, it's weird because they even do this with the in, with the introductions. It's it's strange that they they try they 
their guests no bothers with trying to distinguish the characters. They all seem yeah. very similar. When, when you um, see, yeah, when you see that, you immediately think, "Oh fuck, I got to remember all these people's names." Like I don't. Like it, they try to squeeze as much as yeah, they can yeah. into ten minutes. It's strange that he tries to do that, um, Gaspino. Even with that uh, that scene that you're talking about, where the dancers are talking to each other, I don't mind that because the because the, the dialogue seems very highly improvised. I don't even mind the performances. Cause I think Sofia non- Batella is very good in this film. Like she yeah. shows she shows a lot of range in this role. I mean, it might not be the best acting, but they're probably just acting the way that they they are. It's like I don't know, very. Like neo realist, I guess. I like. I feels like to the characters that they portraying, it feels more authentic for them to behave in in that manner. I think. I mean, that that scene that you're talking about in particular is a bit too long. Um, it can't. I I, I can see how you find it obnoxious because uh, just them just talking about like really pointless characterization. I don't know if that's because I'm pretty sure isn't the film supposed to be based off a real event? I don't think so. You don't think so? No. Mm. I don't think it is, but I think you've touched on something there, and what I think the biggest problem with this movie is here is that every scene goes on for about five minutes too long. I think, and and this look, this movie's only ninety five minutes long. This is this is where I think it's more about the experience, and it's like the, there's a there's a, a lot of agency. There's there's not much in the way of cutting back and forth. Usually, the camera glides around and transitions. You know, switches the character that it focuses on focuses on most of the majority of the takes are just long takes um that are just strung together i would believe that but i do think that they go on for too long and this movie is like this idea and this experience it's a very kind of like i understand like it's a very visceral one but the actual concept and the idea of it is quite simple that's why i don't think it's supposed to be very profound and that's why i think because these scenes go on for too long i don't know if it's just because it was to get the film to a feature length or if it was because this is just a really pretentious movie that that like is getting across very simple ideas but like really really hammering at home Mm. or if gaspinelli just thinks his audience is stupid i don't know which one it is but like every scene in this film just went on for too long and look there's only so many times I can see somebody dance, fight, flop around on the floor or try to have sex with someone until it becomes very monotonous and very repetitive and tiresome and boring. And look, this movie would be... This is the last movie I would expect to ever be boring, but somehow it was. Mm. And also, all the characters are just terrible people. None of them are likable in the show. Except for for DJ Daddy. He is the best (laughs) character in this movie. And who I didn't realise until he takes his hat off later in the movie, has the most amazing hair. (laughs) Yeah, I see. I I, I kind of agree with you on that. I I could see Gaspineau trying to push this film to be feature length. I I do agree that it could be shorter, although it wouldn't be so uh, visceral if it were shorter or over-sensational. It was. It's very style over substance in the strongest. There's a lot acts. of substances though in this movie. Oh, there's a lot of substances, not a lot of not substance. not substance, not story substance. But uh, I think the the style is very interesting. Uh, I, I I like it, even though it may not have much meaning to it. It's uh, it's he's, he's Gaspino's use of uh, like bird's eye view shots and tracking as mm. well is 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 very nice yeah. to see. It's like that- technically, it's very well made. Uh, yeah, although that, 
as I said, it's I don't think it's a great film. I think Gaspar Noe has a bit of self-awareness with this film because he seems to have like these really insert these very strange jokes. Like the film's yeah. called Climax, but it opens with what appears to be the last shot. Yeah, and, and it then, even has credits too. Yeah, and it even has credits. Because there's then, no ending credits in this yeah, film. The intro credits actually plays in the middle of the film. It's so it was actually yeah, so funny was, when it happened. Yes. Because like I, I was like people started clapping. I'm like, what the fuck are people clapping? Like the film's only halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> people thought the film ended. It, <laughs> <laughs> That's like with Mandy having its title card show up 75 yeah. minutes into the film. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get to Mandy later, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, Climax, as much as I've kind of talked shit about it, um, I would still really recommend seeing this film. I think it's just a... It's one of those films where... Like, Noah is one of those filmmakers that's... I mean, he's no stranger to controversy and he has oh, got no. it with this film as well, but he's one of those... He's an acquired taste. You're mm. either going to love him or you're going to hate his films. I'm, I'm actually weirdly somewhere in the middle, but like... Same here. But for the experience, and especially seeing this with a crowded audience as well, I would say, I would say, see it. I'd I'd say give it a shot for you if you want to see something with an interesting sense of style that uh, doesn't, I believe, have a strong sense of self-importance. Mm. And that scene where you mentioned um, like all the interviews, and it's got like it's all shown on that uh, '90s box yeah. TV, and it's got the the shelves there. Like one side, it's all books, and apparently, yeah. it's all like um existential nihilist poetry it, it from what it's I had all, a look. It's all postmodern French and then, stuff. Yeah, and then on the other side, it's all these VHS tapes with films like Suspiria, Possession, uh, Schizophrenia, The Street Charms of the Bourgeoisie, yeah. all of these kinds of films, which are... Oh, and Querelle. And Querelle, all probably huge influences on Noah's yeah, work, Yeah, some of say. them... I think, I'm pretty sure, I can't remember now, but I remember when we were doing that recording afterwards, but some of them are referenced in the film. I'm pretty sure... Oh, yeah, they're it, possible foreshadowing, I've, I've, yeah. Because Suspiria yeah. as well. Well, Suspiria with the way it's lit... Um, uh, I, I guess the, the lighting takes... Uh, Harness inspiration from Suspiria. Uh, that and the fact that it's like a dance school as well. Yep. Yep. Uh, I'm not really sure why. Was, I, uh, I, I noticed the quarrel, maybe the homosexuality, but then it's like <laughs> super loose. But um, what what's a bigger inspiration, which is a very huge inspiration for Gaspino, is a film called Angst, which I think is also yes, the name schizophrenia. schizophrenia. Yep. Yeah, uh, I know it as Angst anyway. Um, I, I believe schizophrenia. Be I think schizophrenia here. is the French. Title, I think schizophrenia yeah. is the French title. That's why it's shown as uh, schizophrenia on the VHS. Yeah. Anyway, that, the the way it's shot with the with um with the camera being so high up, like high angle shots, that's definitely from schizophrenia in the, in the tracking. Um, schizophrenia is a huge influence on Gaspino. I think he's even referenced it to being like a huge influence on on his filmmaking overall. Um, Schizophrenia is a very interesting film. I would recommend checking yep. it out. I actually haven't seen all, any of those films that were like on the VHS one, yeah. and apparently Suspiria is the greatest film I've never seen compared to how everyone talks about it, so I have to really get around to it. I especially don't know. now. Suspiria is all right. Especially since that remake uh, with uh, directed by um, Luca Guadagnino, and I loved Call Me By Your Name, yeah. and uh, I'm guessing Suspiria is going to be completely different to that movie. So, uh, Well, if it's going to be similar to the film that Argento made, then probably yes. Well, see, that's interesting. Why? Why do most people like Suspiria? I, I swear, it must be because of the style. Can't be because of the Pro, substance. I don't know. I, like, because it's very again, convoluted. Why, why are you asking me? I haven't seen it. Yeah, fair enough. And anyway, we're talking about myth movies. God damn it. Oh, rare. But yeah, so climax. Um, 
it's spectacularly shot. It the dance sequences are amazing. The production design is really good. I mean, it really evokes like this. This like contained setting really evokes this fear oh, of like paranoia and entrapment. Expressionistic. Mm. Like the lighting and the camera movement gets more deranged as the yeah a lot of t- a lot of like tilted like Dutch angles. A lot of tilted and like Dutch angles yeah. in there as well. Yeah, but um, moving on, I want to talk about a film that I actually got to go to a press screening to, which, yay, I am press, not for another bloody movie podcast, but for movie babble. Um, <laughs> yeah, sadly, this podcast isn't official, but I'm talking about it anyway. But yeah, This so, is the superior podcast. Oh, abs- Nick, your podcast is good, but if Nick, if you're listening, your podcast is pretty good, and apparently I'm now part of your the Movie Babble podcast network, whatever that is. I, you need to catch up. I mean, you've only done like three episodes of the Movie Babble podcast. You need to catch up. And also, get me on the show. <laughs> All right for you. Anyway, so I saw this film, Acute Misfortune, as a press screening, which I was very surprised I got invited to, to be all honest. And... The press screening was an incredibly intimidating experience, but still, seeing all of these very seasoned critics there and like seeing the filmmakers introduce the screening as well, and also having one of my actual film lecturers from university in the audience too, <laughs> and her giving me this look, this weird look like, You don't belong here. What are you doing here? <laughs> Yeah, but so no, I got to see this one. This is an Australian film. This was actually part of the uh, MIF Premiere Fund, one of the five films, and I believe one of the only two features, feature film, feature narrative films that were funded by the Premiere Fund this year. Um, I saw the other one, Undertow, which I'll get to later in the later in the program. But M- Acute Misfortune is a biopic slash adaptation of a biography of um, an Australian painter named, uh, what was his name, Adam Cullen, who was an Archibald Prize winner, and at the age of 42, he was the youngest artist to have like a career retrospective at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. But this film follows, essentially, it's a weird adaptation of the biography, which is also called Acute Misfortune, written by Eric Jensen, who is a who at the time was just a 19-year-old um, uh, journalist working for the Sydney Morning Herald and now has like he's the founder of the Saturday paper and is like a very well-respected journalist here in Melbourne. But it's about him and uh, he wrote this piece on Cullen when he had his career retrospective at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Cullen read the piece. He was like, he was like, he was impressed by it. So I was like, hey, can you write my biography for me? It, it, he goes over, he, he he pretty much lived with him on and off for four years from 2008 to 2012 up until Cullen's death in 2012. And it's, yeah, it's about essentially their tumultuous relationship and like the writing of this biography. So it's a really weird kind of merit meta narrative. It's an adaptation mm. of the biography, but the adaptation so like is in, about in writing the biography. It's about him writing the biography on the subject. Yeah. It's a a fascinating way to to look at it. And um, yeah, um, the guy that plays Adam Cullen, uh, Daniel Henschel, who has been around for a little bit. He, um, you might know him. He was in, he was the lead in Snowtown. He was also the child psychologist in the Babadook. He's um, been in a couple of other, like a bigger roles. He had small roles in a Ghost in the Shell and Okja recently, but now mm. he's back in Australia doing Australian films again. And oh my god, he just completely transforms himself into Adam Cullen. Like the, the, his look changes so many times throughout the film, like through his facial hair, whether he's bald, whether he's got a bit of hair. Like it's a complete transformation, and he is just such a, a very unpredictable figure. And he plays him just to perfection, and it was 
kind of terrifying in that <laughs> sense as well. But the problem for me with the movie, and I guess this is kind of a drawback, and I understand they had the real-life Eric Jensen who wrote the biography as a screenwriter for this film. Unfortunately, it is more about... It's more about... Hold on. What, is it more about Jensen than it is about... Not, not more about Jensen, Helen? but it's from Jensen's perspective. And I understand why they do that, but you get a lot of things about Jensen's personal life, and I'm like, do I really need this? I'm, I'm more interested... He's, no, he's nowhere near as interesting as Cullen. It, it's a very... A lot of people have... Lo- just don't worry about it. Eric's moving a paper bag that's caught underneath his chair. It's gone now. <laughs> yeah, but I found this film... A lot, like since it's because I got to see it about a week before its world premiere, which was a very, very odd oh. thing. But uh, it's it's really good. It's also from a uh, first-time director, Thomas M. Wright, who is more known for an as an actor. Um, he was one of if you saw um, Robert Connolly's Balibo, he's one of the Balibo Five, one of those journalists oh. in the Bal- Balibo Five, and the director of Balibo, uh, Robert Connolly, is one of the executive producers of this film. So that kind of makes sense. Uh, it's an interesting film. I, like, it's gotten huge, huge acclaim from the festival. Like, it won the Ages Critics Award recently um, for Best Australian Feature of the festival. Um, there was some Australian films which I'll get to... Uh, one particular Australian film, which I'll get to later, that I liked a little bit more than this. But it's still a very solid film worth seeing, especially for Daniel Henschel's performance. And it's shot in the aspect in Academy Aspect Ratio as well. And it really does a great job at honing in on these two characters and just, oh. like, really, you know, expressing... I don't know where I was going with that, but it, it look it's a really good looking film. It kind does of it, looks does it express their emotion much mm, better? Yeah, because with the with the Academy ratio, because it's smaller. Yeah, it really narrows like the, the focus the, to just these yeah, two. Yeah, like the close ups are usually more um, impactful. Mm. So it takes it more. It, it it also has this nice, really kind of faded film look to it too. But I mean, it was shot digitally, but it looks it has this nice kind of faded film look to it, mm. which was really nice. There's a couple of weird things in this movie. There's a couple of uses of reverse footage, which I found to be a little bit too much and maybe a little bit too pretentious but i still think this is a really good australian film that is definitely worth seeing acute misfortune check it i think out. i'll check it out yeah Sounds- i'm not sure when or what kind of when it's going to get a release but keep an eye out for it because All right. some even some of the um, myth premiere fund films that came out last year still haven't really got a release or they mm. they got released and then just to like no fanfare because mm-hmm. I saw, I saw. Admittedly, I saw one of these um, premiere fund films last year. I mean, it was it wasn't good. It was actually kind of terrible. It was called The Butterfly Tree, and it came out. It just was. It was released in like the Nova for like a week, and then just got dumped on DVD like four months mm. afterwards. That's unfortunate. Uh, next film. This was technically well. This was technically the first film I saw as part of the festival, even though I saw a cute misfortune. But this was a week before the festival started. But I saw this Icelandic film called Woman at War. Now I'm going to quickly for the rest of these. What I'm going to do, just so I don't get stumped in uh, talking about like it and uh, like this, getting stumped <laughs> like this. Um, talking about the, I'll bring up the plot synopsis or like the um, festival description on uh, the website or in the Myth Program Guide, which we've also got here. And I'll read that out just to give a better detailed um, yeah, like kind some of context. Yeah, some context to it. So yeah, Woman at War, it's an Icelandic film. Um, it is by a filmmaker, which I'm not... Fr- uh, Benedict Erlingson, who made a film a couple of years back called Of Horses and Men, which I have not seen. But this is um, a film that won some kind of award at Cannes. I'm just trying to remember which one it was. The Society of Dramatic Authors and Composers Prize at the Critics Week of Cannes. And this is an Icelandic film about a middle-aged woman named Hala, who is a, by day, is a choir teacher, or the leader of this choir. But um, she leaves a secret double life as uh, this uh, 
this um, eco-warrior that uh, goes around and, uh, you know, is cutting down, is trying to, like, sabotage power lines and cut down all these <laughs> things and, you know, trying to um, essentially, you know, take bring down, mm. like, single-handedly bring down, like, the heavy industry that, like, threatens the natural beauty of, like, the mountain ranges of Iceland. So, yeah, so she's on this one-woman crusade to do this. She's pretty much just... The, a big thorn in the side of the Icelandic government. And um, her one-woman crusade is halted temporarily when she finds out that her um, her uh, application to adopt a child has been accepted. This is a really interesting film, and I can, I'm, I'm just going to say this here, and um, my, Glenn Falkenstein from the Film Fight Club podcast, who I made appearances on their show, so check them out. I'll plug them at the end of this, or probably mm. at the end of part two while we're here. Um we both kind of came to the same conclusion is that I guarantee you this film, because it, this, the themes of this film are so universal and it's just so well done, this will almost certainly be remade into an English language film sometime within the next few years. This film, at the time, mm. it, it's, it, it's in my top 10 of the year. I absolutely love this film. It's, it has this very offbeat kind of Nordic humour to it. Like a lot of like Icelandic <laughs> films, like kind of like Swedish films, have this very weird sense of humour mm. and it's very good. But... um. What this film does, and I kind of thought this would be the gimmick of the film after watching the trailer, because it's essentially this movie essentially gets a Family Guy gag in this film and runs with it, and it's it's it would sound stupid, but it's awesome. So the score of this movie has this very kind of Icelandic folk music and these Ukrainian singers. That's kind of the score of this movie. But the thing is, the bands are actually there, and they follow her around literally oh that's really cool so it's diegetic and like you think is this all in her head but there are there are times where the band interact with the world around them and like other characters in the film so you're like okay they're clearly there i I thought it would get tiresome at the start because i'm like oh like because i thought this the third time it happened i'm like oh okay this isn't getting this is getting a bit old and tacky but then it just kept going i'm like no okay no this isn't really working this is they must use it well they use it really really well yeah so it was a really good thing. It's also just a brilliant performance. I'm not even going to bother to pronounce this actress's name because the, uh, it's a Hal- very Eldora. Eldora Gerhard. It's got. It, it has a symbol from the phonetic alphabet in this name, yeah. which I haven't done. I haven't done phonetic. Um, not phonetics. I haven't done linguistics since year twelve, so I can't remember what that symbol means. But this actress's name. She is fantastic in this film, and she plays two different roles because she also plays her twin sister. And yeah, she pulls off yeah, both both very different characters and they she pulls both of them off absolutely like superbly to the point where I was like, are, are they the same actor or does she actually have a twin sister? <laughs> it's pulled off do really they, well. Do they they play along? Do you see both characters in the same in the one yeah. room as well? She's like pulling yeah. a pulling a Jeremy Irons uh my oh. mouth is too close to the microphone. Oh mate. sorry, my bad. Yeah, pulling a Jerry Jeremy Irons from Dead Ringers. Oh, I would have thought um, Tom Hardy and Legend or a few more nah. recent examples. There's plenty of other examples where that has happened. But Oh, well, I mean, that's probably my favourite example because I thought he did a, like, a great job playing oh, right. two different characters. Yeah, but I would definitely... I mean, this it's th- this is the problem with ha- not having done a podcast in quite a while. And like, I'm sure... I think I did talk about this film in one of those uh, straight afterwards ones where I would have had more deeper thoughts on this. But uh, yeah, it's a very good film. Uh, so I can't really remember much from it, but I remember really loving it. There's a point, I, I will say though, there was, this movie had about five different points where I thought this was going to end, but luckily each different part where I thought it was going to end got better and better and better and better and better. 
So that's good. It's a very, very offbeat film. Uh, expect an English language remake in the next couple of years, but it won't be as good as this. Woman at War, great little Icelandic film. It was a really good way to start the festival. Yeah, I mean, it's a better, I guess it's a better introduction than mine, Climax. Yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, Climax is, I, I was, well, it's not a super strong film, but I thought it was a, it was a good start. Mm. It's a fun start, at least. Yep. Um, I'm just going to quickly, before we get into yours, um, the, the film you're going to talk about, I'm just going to quickly mention Wildlife. This was the um, this was the first film, the opening night film of the Melbourne International Film Festival. Uh, this got a lot of buzz out of Sundance, and mm. I was especially interested in watching this because of, especially the cast, it's got Jake Gyllenhaal, it's got Carey Mulligan, and it's got um, young, young Australian actor Ed Oxenbold in this film as well. But it's mm. also, speaking of actors, is directed by one. It's a dire- directed, the directorial debut of uh, Paul Dano, who I really like as an actor, and he also wrote this film alongside his partner Zoe Kazan as well. Um, it's about the, uh, uh, it's adapted from, I believe, a Richard Ford novel. And here we go. I'll read the description here. Joe is 14 years old. Joe is um, Ed Oxenbold's character. He is a quiet and observant teen. His parents, his mother Jeanette, Carrie Mulligan, fumbling with the expanding female world of the 1960s America, and Jerry, Jill and Hall, struggling with what struggling with what it means to be a man who can't hold down a job or support his family, are drifting apart when his dad leaves to go fight a nearby wildfire. It's the last straw. As Jeanette starts exploring her options outside of being a wife and a mother, Joe is forced into the awkward position of being both a voyeur of and a participant in his mother's new life. So yeah, it's essentially 1960s. You, it, It's essentially a divorce drama from the perspective of a child. Which... Mm. Admittedly, I understand what they're going for, but it ultimately doesn't really work because Ed Oxenbold, who is good in the movie, and but he is the least interesting character of the entire film, and his character doesn't really go go through. Does he get a lot of screen time? Like he gets a lot of screen time, but he's 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 the eyes and he's your eyes and ears of this film. He's essentially the audience surrogate. You are seeing everything in the film through him. Which would be fine, but he doesn't really him as a character doesn't really go through much growth. It was if it was told from Carrie Mulligan's perspective, who is the by far and away the most interesting character and who I think is the best performance in this movie as well, because that's the highlight of this movie is the performances though, mm. and you'd expect that from an actor turned director because you know yeah I mean Paul, that's his craft yeah Paul, Paul Dano as an as an actor knows what a director wants from it's, him and it's that's, just like how in the past we comment on a cinematographer turned director and like oh the film looks fantastic but everything else is pretty you know mediocre or whatnot yeah so the, yeah the acting is always always going to be fantastic because you know it's it's essentially a promotion from acting directing mm. you, you're being to- as an actor you're being told what to do and as a director you're telling people what to do so mm. in, yeah in that sense it's a promotion and yeah the performances are by by far and away the best part of this film uh what I but the thing is, and the performances do elevate this film, but as I was saying, Ed Oxenbold's character, he yeah, he just doesn't really grow much as a character. If it was focused on Carrie Mulligan, it would have been so much more so much more interesting. But the the problem with this film overall is that it isn't really that interesting and apart yeah, the Ed Oxenbold's character or even Jake Gyllenhaal, who is admittedly not really in the movie that much. Well, I mean it doesn't. It seems pretty run of the mill story wise. Divorce yeah. drama. Uh, you yeah. Got the three. You know. Uh, you, you got the three stakeholders. You got the mother. You got the the father and the son. The only from that synopsis, the only really interesting or unique element was the wildfire aspect. Just mm. I, I guess a piece. A, a, Which what's it, a tipping point in an area for Gyllenhaal to I don't know gain more characterization or yeah but here's the thing after he leaves for the wildfire you don't see him for about another hour into the movie 
That happens in like, he leaves for the fire in, and like at around the 15 or 20 minute mark and he doesn't come into the, he doesn't come back into the film until like midway through the third act. Well, that's weird. Well, I, I think it's because they only had, like Jake Gyllenhaal was busy with other projects and he, could, he only had like two weeks on set for this film. Uh, but, fair enough. Uh, and when he is, he steals every scene he's in, but you mentioned the wildfire and that's what, something I'm going to get to. It's something I didn't really, like, but it didn't really bother me at first, but the more I've thought about this movie, the more it's really frustrated me. Mm. And you mentioned the wildfire. The metaphors in this movie are so blatant and <laughs> so just crammed down your throat. I mean, I still, I think I still have a delayed onset concussion from the amount of times this movie beat me over the head with its metaphors. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, the wildfire, I mean, you, 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 if you've seen them, there's especially, there's like a roll credits moment, especially, where... Like Jake Gyllenhaal, I'm not sure, but it might even be the trailer where, like, after a big argument and like Ed Oxenbold, Ed Oxenbold's character walks in after they've had this, you know, big blow up with each other, like screaming. Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal have just been screaming at each other. Jake Gyllenhaal goes, "It's a wildlife, isn't it?" End film. No, no, no. That's not not, not oh. the end of the film, but it's it's towards the it's it's when Gyllenhaal's character is back in. But it was just so frustrating, and there's mm. even there's an even more the on the nose one where they're driving through where the fire has been through. It's like, do you know what they call the dead trees? They call them the standing dead. <laughs> and I was like, wow. Okay, yeah. Ouch, ouch. Stop hitting me with that bat of me- that metaphorical bat, please. That Jeez. was a bit too much. You might have to wear a helmet when you go to the cinemas <laughs> now. Yeah, but as I said, yeah, apart from the performances which really elevate this film, this movie is quite by the numbers and conventional, as I said. Like, the cinematography is quite static. The the pacing is very, very slow, and I get why it is, but it just... It doesn't really do anything with it. It doesn't really build up to anything either. It, mm. It's okay. It's just... It was a bit of a letdown, in all honesty, though. Mm, that's a shame. Right. Is it time for me to talk about yes. the film now? Hagazusa, Heathen's Curse. Tell oh. me more about this film, because I know literally nothing about it. apart. Well, from it's interesting, because I watched this right after uh, Climax at like 12 o'clock. It was strange, because I, I didn't really know much about the film. Uh, oh, well, I didn't really know anything about the film. All I knew about the film was that uh, it was set in the 15th century, I believe, um, and it was dealing with, like, uh, witches and witchcraft and that, that kind of stuff. Didn't the... Um, I believe the uh, festival description said compared it to something with, like, David Lynch or a few and a few other pe- few other filmmakers. It was, like, heavily inspired by those kinds of filmmakers. I might bring it up. You mo- Maybe you should bring it up, but um, I, c- I could see it drawing connections to i don't know maybe maybe tarkovsky yeah tarkovsky and lynch is who they they mention and lynch. and very yeah it's like if tarkovsky cool. and lynch remade got together and remade um the witch that film from a couple of years back it's not like the witch though oh okay it's well like the witch well festival cool. guide's clearly just trying to sell the movie then i guess yeah i mean i could see the connections to tarkovsky because it's it's very slow. It was so slow that it annoyed the shit out of Cohen. Um, <laughs> uh, although it's very like it's a like a Tarkovsky film, very dependent on on the visual aspect. Uh, not a lot of dialogue at all. Um, uh, I'm pretty sure Hagazusa was in Academy uh, aspect ratio as well. Oh, was it? Uh, I can't remember because it's been like couple of weeks and i watched it like 12 yeah and for those people that don't know academy aspect ratio is pretty much four by three it's just slightly larger yeah i uh, yeah, no, i'm pretty sure it was just because the way it was shot there was a strong emphasis on uh 
uh, close-ups and the way that the 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 composition of characters is done in a way where it's like um like the symmetry would be would match with that of that aspect ratio um like like if another comparison you could draw to a tarkovsky film was a heavy use of getting the the grimy detail of of uh like the props or the environment uh, you just see these crazy close-ups of um of like you know just mushrooms and like moss on 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 the on the boards of a house like it it really does a lot to sort of immerse the viewer into the the world of the film, which I like. Uh, the The film doesn't really have much in the way of a narrative. I, I guess the narrative is the growth of this 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 girl who turn who becomes a woman. It's a sort of split into like three distinct parts: as her as a girl, as her uh, living out in the village when it's summer. I think it starts in the season of winter. There's her um, in the summertime when she has a child. So that's a big. Uh, skip in time and then the last skip is uh, is i think autumn and that's when the 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 black plague comes by and people are dying <laughs> and she seems to be uh she seems to be the um you know only woman unaffected by the black plague although she seems to be in a very strangely morbid uh set of mind because uh, some of the things that happen in the last act are very gnarly maybe that's, that's where the film draws gets its uh Lynch, Lynch com- comparisons. The Lynch comparisons. It's quite, It's weirdly surreal in the sense where you're not certain if supernatural things are happening or it's just psychological. Because these, because the mother and the daughter do live on their own, and isolation can cause a human to hallucinate. So I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if I don't know, she saw something that wasn't there. Yeah. Although, um, because she lives separate from the the larger Germanic community. Her and her mother were seen as witches. Uh, her mother ends up passing away in the first act, and then she sort of becomes the uh, the target as the as the village uh, witch. And uh, the the protagonist sort of dealing with this uh, with this harassment from from the village as a whole, and even the um and even the church. So I'm not sure if that's uh if this is supposed to strictly be a exploration of um of uh, how women were treated back in that that time, that era, or if it was more more so like an exploration of the, the mindset of uh, people being very sheepish and not liking people who, well, didn't behave like everyone else did. So it sort of, sort of brings up these interesting ideas of sort of, I don't know, femininity, maybe the, the, the church doesn't like how independent this woman was because she, she lacks a husband. She has a child, but she lacks a husband. You know, you know the, the film never explains... How the child came by could it even be supernatural, possibly, but um, it's likely that she had sex with a man and the man dashed. Um, yeah. Do you think this movie belonged in the night shift portion of the? Uh, I believe it's not night shift portion of the program because yeah. you saw this at eleven forty-five on a Saturday night. Yeah. What 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 kind of atmosphere was the uh, the room like? Were they expecting? Oh. I mean, because that's kind of uh, essentially, it's not as you would uh, a midnight movie like a lot of the night shift films. It's not were. like the grindy, exploitation y type, yeah, slurry like, stuff. Like that's, that's why it was weird to see it there. Like, it was a horror film. Uh, it has horror elements, I'll say that. I guess it's a horror film. Um, technically, it's very well made. Lots of good sound design, editing, uh, cinematography. Weirdly enough, Hagazusa and Climax started with a. Bird's eye view shot of a character traveling through the snow. 
That was very, <laughs> that was very weird to see. Um, yeah, one straight after the other. It's like, yeah, wait, am I watching the, the same other. movie yeah. again? Oh, fuck, I'm watching Climax like, again. This is Climax <laughs> in the 15th century. Well, Ooh, actually, no, yes. you know what's I, weird? By the way, I would see that. I would see that too <laughs> because it'd pr- practically just be like, the, I don't know, the, the, the Cameron or something. Anyway. <laughs> oh, ooh, well, that just reminded me of the little hours. Yeah, didn't didn't mean to that bring just, up that and trauma. By the way, you mentioned like what else has that guy done. I found out recently that uh, Jeff Boehner, the guy who re- wrote and directed uh, The Little Hours, co-wrote the screenplay with David O. Russell to I Heart Huckabees. That's weird. Yeah. I've never... Uh, seen high heart Huckabees. I, I hear that some people seem to like it a lot although I I, I bet if I watch I'm just going to be disappointed just because of the strange hype built around it yeah but uh, I remember David O'Russell like thought it was his magnum opus at the time he was making it well oh my goodness we are 41 minutes in and we've gone through about a tenth of the list so that's fine Quickly wrap up with Huggers or so. would you recommend people go see this Is if you, uh, if you like these kind of well, slow burn like methodically kind of built up yeah like, well it's very ambiguous it, it's it's that's something that annoyed Cohen how ambiguous it was because it wasn't it never really clearly defined uh what really was happening it's really left up to the audience to interpret i guess that's an, another aspect of it being both a lynch and a tarkovsky film so, that's not really a, a, a in a tribute so that's do you unique th- to those Do you think that it's ambiguous in, in a smart way? It's like in a thought-provoking kind of ambiguous well, way? I or, think it's, or I think it's or, ambiguous in a, thro- in a thought-provoking way because... Uh, uh, not not thought-provoking in just a, ah, uh, fuck, we couldn't think of an ending. Just no, to no, tack, no, on, no. tack on a the, bullshit the ending. ending the, ending's very, the ending's very interesting. Uh, I, I think it's thought-provoking in a way because you can, you can watch it, you can watch it interpreted in many ways. Like, you can interpret it as in, like, uh, okay, there are supernatural because Cohen. That's how he saw it. He saw, he saw there are supernatural things happening. That 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 woman. She was a witch. Uh, that's why she did these things. She was being tempted by the devil, etc. I saw it as um, you know she's not a witch. Uh, these townspeople that are harassing her, making her think that believe that she's a witch. Therefore, she starts to behave like one. Does these strange rituals, but because she's isolated and alone, she starts to hallucinate. Uh, well, she does, weirdly enough, another connection, like, comparison to Climax. She does take hallucinogens, and uh, some crazy shit happens at the end, but I, I believe it's all supposed to be sort of metaphorical, um, sort of, like, very na- ghastly, um, in, like, uh, conjur- conjurations of uh, all sorts of anxieties and fears of being, like, a, being a mother and uh, sort of just being this lone woman, in this uh, strange setting that's uh, very cold and harsh for the most part. So I, I thought that the film was uh, it was more about that than it being a genuine witch story. But So I think it's uh, thought-provoking in that aspect where you can watch it and you could you could really just craft your own interpretations from the the scenes that are brought before you. Well, thanks for that, Eric. Um, I, I don't know if I'm... I, would you, I don't know if I'd recommend it to you. Just uh, yeah, I think I think you'll enjoy the technical aspect, but you might be a bit like, "What the fuck did I just watch? It's a bunch of weird shit." <laughs> I do like some weird stuff, but yeah. Um, oh well. But um, moving on uh, to one of the films that was uh, very very oh. hyped um, at Cannes, and uh, especially from uh, uh, IndieWire head critic David Ehrlich, who called this a masterpiece with a bunch of fire emojis in his um, uh, well, in his letterbox review. I don't know if you would take that seriously with the fire. I don't know, just... But no, yeah, so but th- this film has got a lot of praise. This is the South Korean film Burning from uh, Lee Chang-dong, who is a filmmaker, unlike 
but this is the good thing about Melbourne International Film Festival. There's all these filmmakers, mm. like very established in in their own in their own rights, but I who I'm, who I'm, whom I have never heard of. But everyone on the because I'm fairly new to the festival circuit and to like this kind of film, these kinds mm. of films. So now I'm get to discover all these really cool filmmakers. But yeah. um, do you know much of Chang Dong's previous work? Or uh, no, I don't think I've ever seen a film from him. No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, although I I hear that people seem to like him a lot and um, I'm pretty sure Burning is his most successful film like critically and maybe possibly financially this is where th- it, things really kicked off for him so now he's going to be like a like a remembered or household name for like future festivals it seems like yeah so Burning this film is about a I believe it, it's a, a struggling writer like so a recent college graduate now struggling writer named uh, Jong Soo who pretty much is just uh, his father is about to go to jail um for reasons that I can't exactly remember but um he's pretty much uh you know he's a writer. He can't get. He, he's a writer. He can't get uh, a job at the moment, <laughs> or he's he's struggling. And that's one of my. Speaking of um, I, I was t- talking about um Netflix's disenchantment. One of the funniest lines in that is like, I, I'm a, yeah, it's like I've met a lot. Like the demon voiced by Eric Andre is like, I've met a lot of writers. Most of them are in hell. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, so one day when doing an odd job, um, he stumbles across an old, uh, like, an old neighbour and an old uh, classmate of his who uh, she admits, like, so they re- she, these two reconnect and she admits to him that, like, hey, I had a huge crush on you back in school, but you never took notice of me, but now that we're doing this, we can get back together, like... So yeah, they become friends again. They start becoming a couple, but then she's she's like, "Oh, okay, I'm going on this like humanitarian trip to Africa. Can I get you to feed my cat in my tiny little apartment?" And so what happens? She like so he take takes care. These two get back together, and while she's over in Africa, he takes care of his cat. When she returns, he, he's very happy to see her, but then he's very um, surprised to find out when this uh, strapping young, handsome, rich Korean. Um, like Playboy-esque figure played by The Walking Dead, Stephen Young pops up, whose name is Ben in this film, who is very mysterious and he may not be who he seems to be. So we start getting this love triangle between these two people. But the good thing, what I liked about this movie, it start, it, it, it does have a very big tonal shift. Like it does start out as this very kind of nice romantic comedy about, not romantic comedy, but this romance about these two people like reconnecting with each other after a very long time. And then, yeah, Glenn from The Walking Dead shows up and uh, really throws a spanner in the works. And, like, it, yeah, it's this love triangle between these three. But then um, it turns into a mystery thriller towards the end and a very captivating one at that. I don't really want to say too much more about it that way. One, because I really want people to see this movie and realise the twist mm. for themselves. And two, I really want to talk about... I really want more time to talk about more of these movies because otherwise this podcast is going to be like four hours long. This will be the season... This is going to be the this will be the This will be the elephant sitting still of podcasting. <laughs> but yeah, so... But Burning, yeah, turns into a very, very compelling mystery thriller in towards the third... Like towards the end of the second act and the third act. Um, this movie is two and a half hours long and doesn't really justify the long the runtime. Around the halfway point, the movie really starts to drag. And the last about 10 minutes... There was a perfect spot where I thought this movie could have ended, but then it goes on for about another 10 minutes. And I was like, uh, I didn't really... like it's, it, it has a more satisfying ending 
to what happens, but I'm like, I could have... it's like a more, what, safer it, ending? Uh, not a safer ending, just a more, like, satisfying, more audience-approved kind of uh. moment. But, like, but no, Burning, I, w- I would still recommend this film. Uh, it's quite... It, it does... Is it the masterpiece that David Ehrlich and some uh, critics are making it out to be? No. Is it quite a compelling film that is definitely worth watching, that has some amazing cinematography of this vast Korean countryside that's, like that really just really coincides really well to Jong Su's feelings and like the complete like feeling of isolation and loneliness that he's feeling throughout this whole movie. Absolutely. It's a good film. Uh, definitely check it out when it's out. Um, maybe, maybe the hype, it's a teeny bit overhyped mm. maybe, but yeah, I would say definitely check this one out. The next film, uh, another one. I mean, this is, I don't know if that was Sundance that this one was, but I'm pretty sure it played at Cannes as well. This is uh, Deborah Granick's new film, Leave oh. No Trace. Uh, and Deborah Granick um, was a guest here at MIFF this year, and she was fascinating to listen to in the Q&A after Jeez, this film. Would, did you actually go to the Q&A? And... Yeah, I did. Oh, that's awesome. It was after the film, so oh, I, yeah, I, yeah. of course I stuck around. I didn't know if she had like her own panel. She, she did have one of those as well, but I didn't go to that. She she had an in conversation uh, like talk. Now before you start, have you seen anything else from Deborah Granick? No, because I believe she's only made two other films. There's yeah, she hasn't she's made, made many. W- Winter's I've Bone, seen Winter's Bone, and I haven't seen the documentary she did about that Vietnam War veteran, which was uh, one of the reasons why she did this film. Mm. But yeah, yeah. Li- no, sorry, you. Oh, I was just gonna say because uh, Winter's Bone was very lo-fi, like um. Uh, not a lot of money spent on it. It was interesting because it was like what one of the first performances of Jennifer Lawrence. Well, it was and what made it, like, it's that what was made her famous. Oscar nomination sure. from that, yeah, and that's yeah. what got her attention. I'm pretty sure that's why she got that. That was the reason why that was pretty much her audition tape for the Hunger Games. I'm pretty yeah. sure. I mean, uh, Winter's Bone was very interesting to uh, was was interesting to watch from memory. So it'd be interesting to see how Leave No Trace uh, is in comparison to that because this is like you know, got much more funding behind it, and uh, yeah, she's she's a more established name, more established at, this point, name yeah, at this point. Like I hear lots of good things from uh, Leave No Trace. So what did you think of it? Um, I think it's quite good. And for people that don't know about this, this is kind of a more grounded, realistic version of Captain Fantastic from a few years back. A movie mm. which I really loved, but like the movie is a little bit too, ca- that movie is a bit too cartoonish and very, like talk about movies that are really Sundance. That movie is probably one of the most Sundance quirky indie yeah. films I've seen in It's quite, quirky like, and fun, but it's, it's it doesn't, there's a bit of a weird juxtaposition when it changes tone to series. Yeah, and but I, th- I think it does. Smooth. I think it does it all right, and I think Vigo Vigo Mortensen is fantastic. Like, yeah, Vigo uh, Mortensen fantastic is fantastic in as Captain, Captain fantastic. fantastic. But yeah, so this movie stars Ben Foster, who's a uh, Iraq War veteran who is living in the fo- in the middle of a national park on the outskirts of Portland, and he is raising his 13 year old daughter. Uh, one day, their camp is discovered by park rangers, and uh, they are arrested and they had tried to then they uh then social services help them to try and reintegrate back into society now i wanted to like this movie as much as some other people did because i guess this is this is the thing with overhyped american independent film it's just like mm. oh this is the best thing ever it's amazing oh yeah. it's amazing it's i mean good it's good it's very some of good. the americans have a really bad tendency of overhyping their own films because yep. they they might secretly know that they're Films are a lot weaker than they are across the globe. Like at least the independent ones. Not saying that they're not trying to have a shot at them. Saying that they're bad, but you know they're not as good as they as they're hyped up to be. Mm. But yeah, this film, I think it's 
perfectly directed by Granick. Absolutely. It's really, really well done. The production design as well, like every, the production design and cinematography just works so well hand in hand together. I mean, every shot of the forest, like it's just so green, it's so natural for lack of a better word. Like honestly watching it, I'm like, you know what? Fuck Melbourne. <laughs> let's just, <laughs> let's go, let, let's just do it. Let's do it. You gotta let's live in the bush. It. Yeah, why not? Yeah, and also just Ben Foster, who ever since Hell or High Water, thank God, is starting to get more attention from people as a really great actor. He is just... It's very understated, and it's a much more subtle performance than some of the other stuff he's done. But yeah, he is just outstanding in this film. But the standout in this film, similarly to what Winter's Bone did for Jennifer Lawrence, Leave No Trace will do to uh, young New Zealand actress Thomason McKenzie. She is spectacular in this. And the two work off each other really, really well. Where I do think the film falters a little bit is actually in its script a little bit. It does seem a little bit repetitive. And um, an interesting thing to quote, um, not to quote, to praise the script uh, very quickly, it's... um, it's a very nice film. It doesn't really demonize anyone. Like the social service, like an easy route to go through in this movie would to depict the social service workers as the villains. It's like, oh, trying to integrate us back into society. How dare you? <laughs> but yeah, it, it doesn't do that, which I found. But then it, a backhand to that is there isn't really any conflict in this film. There's no real external conflict in this movie. It's more of kind of the internal conflict and this and the Ben Foster's struggle with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, which I don't quite think they fully pulled off. And to be quite honest, um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the father-daughter relationship and like that whole dynamic, I really couldn't buy into it or really connect with them until the very very end like the ending to this film is heartbreaking and really just hits you in the back of it like hits you so hard like a metaphorical baseball bat but (laughs) this this one not as metaphorical but um from what people i've spoken to about this one this movie has very subtle use of symbolism which must have been subtle because i absolutely did not pick up on that so maybe that's why i would still recommend leave no trace i wanted to like it a lot more than i did but I just it left me wanting a little bit more, but I would still definitely recommend seeing this mm. film, and is made made me curious to check out uh, Deborah Granick's other work. And I think this would actually be an interesting double feature with Winter's Bone because from what I've hear hear about Winter's Bone, it's fairly similar. Yeah, well, Winter's Bone was uh, was about like uh, poor like people in poverty living out in like the rural parts of Southern America. So I could see I could see the connection where if, with with uh, the characters sort of coming from a really rough background uh you know not just in an economic sense but sort of in the an environmental sense as well like the 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 poor out poor all south america could just be as treacherous as just living it in a in out in the wild uh, before you talk about your film now i'm going to quickly mention a film that i saw called damsel this is an american western comedy film i use comedy very loosely because this film isn't really all that funny uh this is from the zelma brothers who did kumiko the treasure hunter a few years back and this stars robert pattinson and mia wasikowska and this is essentially about robert pattinson's character who is going on a road trip with uh, a local pastor who's played by one of the zelma brothers and a miniature horse named butterscotch who is a wedding present and these two go on the road to Pretty much, go, like, so they go on the road to try and find Penelope, who's played by Mia Wasikowska, because that's Robert Pattinson's girlfriend, and they're going to get married. So, it's so, this movie, yes, yeah, starts out as a very simple, 
road comedy essentially but in this film i'm, I'm not going to talk too much about this film but this film has a huge plot turn at the at the halfway mark which subverts all expectations of this genre and the the rest of the film preceding it and i, I think admittedly was a really a really cool twist unfortunately there's still 50 minutes of movie left and they don't really know what to do afterwards so it's like they pulled an audition, but it didn't work. The... An audition? Well, I haven't seen auditions, so I can't really say that. But from oh, the we'll... sounds of that, we have no time to discuss it, mate. Oh, right, <laughs> we're going to talk about ten. We're going to talk about audition for like ten minutes in this movie. This oh, podcast gonna is going to go on like, forever. Like audition starts off as a romantic comedy, then turns into a horror film. I well, no, let's explain just, why. Th- there's just happens. there's just a huge plot turn that happens, changes. It, it, it turns into a complete different movie, but yeah, there's still 50 minutes of movie left after this happens, and the movie doesn't really... The, although the twist is good, the movie doesn't know what to do with it. Even even one of the characters in the film, shortly after this happens, and it's ironic because this character is played by the director of the film, says, well, what happens now? And I'm like, well, is that is that improvised, or is that just the director's notes accidentally making its way into the script? <laughs> that would have yeah, and I was, and yeah, the movie just—it's not really that funny. It just a lot of the humor doesn't land. A lot of the physical comedy does work, but from what I found out um, afterwards, a lot of the physical comedy was actually unintentional. There's a great moment where Robert Pattinson's um, character is riding on a horse, and he's got a guitar strapped to his back, and the guitar snags a tree and almost knocks him off his horse. And apparently, that was just—that was completely like on that accident. That was just a take that they just yeah, oh, and they kept the it in the movie. But it was one of the funniest parts of the movie, though. That's what was weird. The, yeah, the, thir- the, the there's some good moments in this film, and I do think Robert Pattinson and Mia Wasikowska are good. I don't think D- David Zellner, even though he is the most interesting character as a director, he is not a very good actor, and he was very poorly miscast. It's just it's a huge missed opportunity. It leaves a lot more to be desired. And um, to speak to quote um, the guys I saw it with at Film Fight Club because we talked about this, they absolutely hated this movie. <laughs> So, and I think one of them said I was the damsel because I was in distress the whole time watching this movie. Oh, God. I believe, yeah, Chris Evans put that up on Twitter right after he saw mm. it. Which reminds me, it's so Robert Patton's doing another film with brothers. It's like he's only working with the brother duos now. Oh, the Safety brothers, yeah, Zelda Safdie, brothers. Yeah. yeah. What is he going to do next? Shall we move on to... Coen uh, brothers. Hopefully. Oh, that'd be good. Coen brothers, if you're listening... Put put R Pats in your movie. I by the way, I am loving R Pats's like I'm sorry for Twilight, I'm actually a good actor now career. It is so good. I love him now. I don't He's amazing. I don't know if, if Twilight would have been a fair metric for any of those actors in the film. <laughs> just be, just because of how fucking quickly they were made, like the yeah. filmmakers, like, oh, who gives a fuck? We we'll just keep the take. Yeah. <laughs> it's just we want to do this as quickly as possible. Throw it in theaters as quickly as you can. <laughs> All right, but um, now you want to talk quickly about um, Ashes Purest White, yeah. which is a film I don't really know a whole lot about. Well, it's a filmmaker uh, made by a fifth-generation Chinese filmmaker. I'm not going to pronounce his name because I can't fucking pronounce Chinese names properly. Jeez. Um, You're a nativist oh, when it comes to film, aren't you? What? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> I am. I can't pronounce anyone's goddamn name. Um, but Ashes Purest White is... Uh, That's why you say no, not no A. <laughs> Oh, I, I do that as a joke. I know it's oh. no way, but yeah, I just, I also intend, if I know the name, I intentionally sometimes pronounce it incorrectly just to piss people off like Sean. <laughs> I believe this director's name is Zhang Ki Zha. That sounds correct. 
It would be a lot more correct than what I would have said, but I'm not going to say pronounce his name. Anyway, um, this this film is a bit disappointing because I, I was hoping it was going to be a bit more because it was a it's a crime like a crime drama that it, w- it would have been a bit more like um, a touch of sin, which I thought was a very strong film. Although this is this, it seems to be a bit more like uh, I think it's mountains. I can't remember the the film, but they made one of fi- his previous films. One of his previous films was one made in uh, 2013. Had mountains. The title wasn't very interesting. It was a bit like that, where the narratively it's a very simple film, and it um, and it seems to really drag with the pacing. the 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 performances are fine. Uh, I think the the characters did a fine job with the performances, but it's really just a sort of like a Chinese. Uh, well, it seemed like it was going to be a Bonnie and Clyde type thing, but it, it actually didn't. The, the the two protagonists end up separating, and they end up doing their own thing, and they end up meeting up in the end uh, at a very old age, uh, where there's sort of like a weird role reversal, where the the girl becomes the leader of the um, of the criminal sort of gambling house, uh, which was what the man's role was originally at the start of the film, but he ends up being sort of like paraplegic because he suffers a stroke, and she ends up. Uh, Although she ends up picking him up after this happens, taking him back to uh, their hometown. And they, they live there for a bit. Although it's strange how it ends because the original owner um, of this, I'm just going to call it the Triad Gang, he ends up just leaving. The reasons as to which I'm not really certain. It seems weird, like he just left because he felt lonely or just felt useless. One of the two. Although like the film doesn't seem to really... This seems to be a thing of the director. Doesn't seem to like focus on, on any particular theme too strongly. Seems to juggle themes as the uh, film progresses. Does it? Does it? Does it? Like so, this movie is a bit of like a like a, to- a juggling act of tones. Does it Not really, really mesh tones? Really well? like, more so ideas. Oh, okay. Like there's there's even a reference to like UFOs. Uh, oh, really? Is, yeah. Because um, I just looked online and it says it's like it, it classifies it as a melodrama. Well, so, it's kind of melodramatic. Uh, okay. The, the acting. Um, Especially between the the two leads can be like very very overdone, not not in a bad sense. Like it seemed like it was intentional, like that, like a proper melodrama. Although it's a bit strange because it's like a ju- it's juxtaposed against this like this really gritty, authentic uh, take on just the just rural China, uh, where it, like even mentions like there's this there's a city that's going to be like uh, under underwater, a coastal city that'll be underwater within like a decade's time. I think it was set. Starts in in two thousand one and ends up like finishing in twenty fifteen, or twenty sixteen. I think it's the the relationship spans over fifteen years. Oh, okay, um, it sounds like another movie that we're going to talk about later today. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it, it was a bit of a letdown. Then it was wasn't a bit it? of a letdown because it, it it does have staples from his other films, like some of his documentaries. The way that they they shoot um, the exterior, uh, sort of like the the the, the Cities sort of reminds me of um, what he does with some of his documentaries and other films, or is he's really sort of exploring like the westernization of China because the, the the environments at the start, especially with this rural town, uh, they they're very I don't know Eastern shanty esque, and as time progresses, move through different cities, cities get more progressive or they get more modernized, and that's something that um, the director likes to explore, just the evolution of china over time oh, that wasn't like that wasn't so strongly 
as I said, like he's just juggling ideas here. That's not so that, that's brought up, but it's not strongly explored. It's more what's more important is this narrative that's unfortunately not very interesting. Uh, it it's sort like of it's like it's sort of been done. It's, it's, it kind of reminds me of, I think you were talking about Cold War. Yes, it kind of reminds me of Cold War, where it's like. Um, it's just, it's just it's it's the, it's a type of romance where the two lovers you know they they struggle to 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 be together because of uh, like uh, external uh, factors that they can't uh, control. Yeah. So that that sort of happens to the the couple in this film. Although D- difference being, Cold War was a blissful eighty-four minutes, and I've just seen this movie yeah, is two, two and, and a half, half hours, hours long. Yeah. Which does it just does it really justify that that lengthy of a runtime? No, I don't no, think so. Ah, uh, it's a shame. Ah, uh, so don't like so maybe give this I one mean, a miss. I, I say that only only because like the film isn't like I don't know the director doesn't seem too certain of what he wants to do. Like he just wants to he wants to make this story, but he's not sure too sure what okay. exactly he wants to do with. So it. there's no there's no real conviction. It doesn't have this. a lot of yeah. It doesn't really uh, have any real conviction, which is a bit unfortunate. All right. Well, moving on to something a little bit more cheery than that, or because mm. was it really kind of a depressing film, or was it like what was the tone? It's not uh, really depressing, I would say. It was. It didn't seem very. It didn't seem to have a very strong emotional punch to it. It was more so uh, you see these uh, characters interact with the world. And you see these these weird chance events happen. Oh, okay. Uh, it doesn't really sound that interesting to me. It's like I, I heard decent things, weak, and it was it, one of the weaker films I, I saw. Yeah, it was nominated for the Palm Door this year too, which is weird. Well, that's weird because. Mm. Um, because I thought it was I, I didn't think it was very strong. Um, I, and I was sort of excited for it just because of the director. Mm. Speaking of the Palm Door, Shoplifters. Oh. I got to see this film. This movie, it's one of the best films of the year. It was a very deserving winner of the Palm Door. Um, it's about a family of shoplifters who uh, live somewhere in Tokyo in impoverished conditions. They live in this tiny house. Like, everyone... like It's a tiny, tiny little house that they're all living in. And, you know, living in impoverished conditions. And, uh, like, the dad has is on and off, has on and off employment. The mother has a very low-income job. So, pretty much the entire... Um, this family relies on both the pension checks from their grandmother, but also the shoplifting. They... They steal from the local supermarket to, you know, make ends meet. So one night after a successful shoplifting mission, if you uh, if you will, this family discovers this little girl out in the freezing cold who is seemingly homeless. Uh, this little girl's name is Yuri. And um, even though these people, you know, they, they can't really... They're struggling to take care of themselves. Mm. They decide to take her under their wing and, you know, you know give her a home, essentially. But then you realise this girl uh, is actually shows up on TV as a missing persons report, and the family is like, "Oh shit, what happens now? Should we keep her? Should we put, should we hand her in? What do we do?" This movie, I, I'm, this movie is just so subtle and so nuanced in the way that it brings out certain ideas that I really don't feel I can do it justice by talking about it after seeing it just once. I really feel like I need to see this again to make sure I get a full grasp of everything that this movie is trying to do. But just to quickly sum up, because again, we're short on time here as well, this is just such a beautifully made and beautifully told story that is just a really, really deep exploration of parenthood, of family, what it really means to be a family and you know belonging, all of these great things. Very deserving Palm Door winner. One of the best. Currently, it is third in my top... In my best films of the year so far, just behind mm-hmm. you were never really here on Foxtrot, so that tells you how much I absolutely adore so this you film. Definitely think it was deserving of the Palm Door. Absolutely, mm. 
Everyone I know that's seen it thinks think it's fantastic. Yeah, and this it was, and I'm glad that I got a ticket to this as well because almost every single session sold out almost immediately. There was three sessions. There was three sessions throughout the festival, all sold out. There was one later. They they added one more screening towards the end of the festival, and that sold out almost immediately too. But this is getting a release uh, in Australia at least in December. So check it out then, please. I definitely will be because I think this film is great. And the film that I saw that same day, just a little bit before, was a Palestinian film. And I think maybe the first Palestinian film I've ever seen. This is called Wajib, or depending on where you are, The Wedding Invitation, or Wajib, The Wedding Invitation. Uh, this is a, yeah, a Palestinian film. This is probably the most relatable film I have seen in a very long time. Um, this is about a young man named Shadi, who is who's a Palestinian man who is uh, working and living in Italy. Who he comes back, he goes back home to Nazareth for his sister's wedding. And as per tradition in their local culture and their and, and their local yeah, as per their local tradition, um, when the daughter when the daughter is getting married, the father and the bride's brother have to go around and send out all of the wedding invitations to the wedding. Um, so yeah, it's essentially this another road trip movie where a father and son, you know, reconnect with each other. Like the the very strange relationship between these two, and they reconnect through this process of giving out all the invitations. And yes, despite this movie, like yeah, it's being. Hold been on, done I'm, I'm going to start again. Before. It's been done to death. I mean, even like I think there was an American, a very similar film like this, uh, Kodachrome, which was an American film, which was, um, I believe, straight to Netflix. It has a kind of very similar theme to this, like you know, a, a road trip. There's many films oh, like it. Uh, absolutely, but this film does it just so authentically and just so naturally, and I think that's due to the fact that the father and son are played by Salah. I'll, I'll bring up their names because they're both really good in this film. They're both both very good in this film. I think one of them is Salah Bakri and Muhammad Bakri. Now, if you can tell, they have the, both the same last name. That is because they are a real-life father and son, and that's oh. why I think it is. I think that's what really works here. They possibly draw. They may have drawn from their own experiences and you know their own natural chemistry in real life and impl- applied it here, and it just does so well. And especially if you are, if you've ever moved out of home and returned back to your shitty little hometown, like we have, like, like we oh, both well, like have, my shitty little hometown and, more than this and place. And you have, and you have, um, <laughs> and you have uh, met back up with old family and friends from that hometown. Some scenes in this movie will feel eerily familiar to you. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Especially if you are going in a, especially if you're going into a career or a profession that your uh, family aren't really too happy with or don't fully support. Yeah, you will absolutely connect with this film and this film does have a little bit to, it has a sly political theme to it as well like um they, they're not inviting certain people because you know they're like israeli nationalists or something like that and you know this movie does highlight some of the struggles of muslims and palestinians living in israel as well and like how that con there's that conflict and that thing still going on it's yeah really really great film it's getting an australian release in october very relatable very heartfelt very nuanced, again, nuanced relationship between this father and son, a real-life father and son in this film. Highly recommend this film. This is one of my f- second favourite film behind Shoplifters of the festival. Mm, must be very strong then. Oh, yeah, yeah. And very funny too. There's a lot of really good humour. I will show you the trailer after this because right. it's very, very good. Now, so, I believe we are up to a film that we have both seen now. Yes, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Oh, yes. Now, 
again, I've talked a little bit about this film, so I want to hear Eric. I'll, I'll, I'll just add a couple of things, but because Eric's seen this for the first time, I want to get Eric's thoughts on this film. Hmm. Well, I thought of The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Yes. Well, I thought it was, I thought it was a pretty good film for the most part. Um, different to what I expected, um, although it's, it's, it's very Gilliam. This seems to be sort of Gilliam sort of, I don't know, self-analyzing himself and his career. Mm. Um, th- there seems to be a lot of references to past failures and past films. Like, strangely enough, it's like, it's a, it's a film that's about the making of Don, like Don yeah, Quixote. Yeah, it's like very the, meta. Like, I love how the past failures of him trying to make this film is like a narrative strand in this yeah. movie. I found that really, really yeah. good. And it's, and it's strange. It's also strange that he actually made the film before, but as a student film, he wanted to make it more grander. Mm. Sort of like, I don't know, Michael but, Haneke doing... Yeah. Like you know, make remaking funny games or whatever. Mm, but then also now that he's making like he's, you could guess that he's more of a sellout now because he's doing commercials. Yeah. Now, yeah. He's more of a sellout, and he and he hates and he ha- sort of hates himself for it. Sort of mm. like the real life Gilliam. <laughs> he's sort of combating against uh, his artistic intentions and what the producers want to want to do. Mm. Like, there's an interesting dinner scene where he's just not paying attention to everyone. They're like, "Oh, we can CGI the giants in here," <laughs> and then someone else says, "Like, you can't do that. He doesn't like using CG." Mm. He likes, you know, using you know, pra- like practical things, which is yep. Gilliam uh, did for a very long time until you know he started to use CG. And I don't know what his stance is on CG, um, although I don't think it's a very positive one. No. Uh, I will say though, like because I mentioned when I reviewed this on the last episode we did when I saw this at Sydney, um, Adam Driver is just a mark of quality in films oh, now. Yeah. Like, I think he's one of the best parts of Black Klansman, which I mentioned at the top. But then also, yeah, he is just... Also, can someone please... When this movie comes out, someone please give me a supercut of every time that Adam Driver swears in this film? Because, oh my goodness, is it funny. Mm. No, Adam Adam Driver was actually a lot better than I thought he'd be in the film. He's doing very well for himself. Mm. He's essentially uh, playing Terry Gilliam. Well, yeah, he's, pre- he's pretty much just playing Terry Gilliam. Uh, this is Gilliam just, you know, wandering around in, in the, the crazy, crazy nightmare slash fantasy of his own head. Like, trying to make this, 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 trying to recreate this, uh, this creative, brilliant film that it, uh, um, that he did in the past, although he's failing to do that. But then he's mm. also being like, uh, he's, he's also being preoccupied or distracted by, um, this, this manifestation of this, uh, of, the chivalrous Don Quixote himself, which uh, I think played he uses brilliantly, yeah, played by, brilliantly Jonathan Price. by Jonathan Price. I think it's very fitting for him to have Jonathan Price as well, because uh, Price has been in quite a few Gilliam films. And uh, when I think of like a of of, of a of, of the go to Gilliam actor, it'd be Jonathan Price, just because you know, Brazil and uh, whatever else he was in. I think Baron Munchausen as well, and this uh, he, was he, he in Time well. Bandits. I can't remember if he was uh, in Time Bandits. He might have been. No, Sean Connery's in Time Bandits, though. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Something I found out about this film, uh, realised watching it again, is that the first two the, the first two acts of this film is one of the funniest comedies of the year by a long shot. Mm. It's, a ve- it's a very funny film. Um, well, it's like, it's a, it was m- much more of a, of a straight comedy, I think, than, mm. I, than I expected. I Although mean... I wish, like, the humour would be a bit more... Like wittier, 
yeah. in other films. It seems a bit the, too late. The hu- the humor is a little bit one note and a bit repetitive, but it's done so well. Like it's very it's performed very well with you know uh, Adam Driver has incredible comic timing in this. I think, mm. and Jonathan Price is just larger than life in this film. Mm. I think Jonathan Price is probably. Him and uh, Adam Driver are real standouts in the film. Mm. I mean, the the production design is very interesting. Like, yeah, sets are uh, quite quite amazing. Yeah, like, and just shooting in rural Spain as well, yeah. it just looks. I mean, I mean, I wanted to be like, take me here, take me here yeah, right I now, mean, please. Really made rural Spain look very nice. I like how we had these weird little tangenty, like frenzied moments of creation where Adam Driver be like having a dream, or well, not really having a dream. Yeah. Uh, something happens, but he's sort of his vision of the event that happened is like highly like fictionalized yeah it's like weird surreal recreation in his mind where he gets captured by uh by some uh illegal immigrants that he thinks that are terrorists yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he imagines them to be like the spanish inquisition or something yeah they're gonna like kill him and it's like really weird and uh jonathan price is like attacking like a giant a bunch of like meat sacks oh, yeah it's really weird <laughs> <laughs> and also, that just reminded me of one of the best moments where he walks into a bar and he's speaking in Spanish to the bartender yeah. and then, like, the subtitles appear up. It's like, Adam Driver's like, we don't need these and yeah. swipes the subtitles away. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> it's funny that it has that because that, that sort of reminds you of just, just past Gilliam films where he... He would set the set a film in this context, but everyone would be like everyone would be like British, uh, and they, yeah, they speak yeah. in English, like Baron Munchausen, the Turkish. They 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 don't ever speak. Uh, Arabic or um, Turkish or Turkish or anything like that. Uh, besides, like this, it's like really weird. There's only like one instance where someone says something in Arabic, but that's because he's like at a watchtower. But other than that, everyone just speaks English. So, but uh, but Gilliam doesn't like care about you know historical accuracy or anything. He just wants to make this like like a, a fun fantasy film fitting within this context. Um, so, I mean, he, like Gilliam is like well aware of these. Uh, I guess these issues and. And it's funny to see that, like that joke, where it's like, "Oh, we don't need the subtitles here," because because mm. when people decide to speak English and Spanish, um, there's there's no real sort of consistency to it, but it doesn't really matter anyway. For the that. majority, they're speaking they're speaking English, and it's and it's fine. Yep. Um. But something I again I've noticed I I, I noticed that on the first time around, but it, it bothered me more on the second the second time around. I mean, this movie is a very male-dominated movie, and look, that that's okay, but it would be better if the only two female characters in this weren't just sex objects. I'm just I mean, going to say this. The representation of, of female characters in this film yeah, is incredibly problematic. Yeah, the representation of women isn't, is, isn't great in this film, but it, the it only, wouldn't really be a Gilliam film otherwise. Yeah, I'll just look, say you that. Cannot, look, you cannot blame that's just the director's style on this. It's 2018. Look, you can make. Admittedly, they don't have to be the most fleshed out things. To be just, honest, just make them more one. Make make them more than just I want to fuck you or I want to fuck her. Okay, just make them more than just sex objects in your film. Opinion, Thank I don't you. really care about that kind of shit. You can do the same thing to male characters. I wouldn't care. I think it should just be left up to the director. If Gilly, if that's how Gillian wanted to do it, I think it's fine. Despite him getting backlash for it, that's that's his pr- problem that he has to deal with. I think it. I think it's fine if he wants to do that. It, 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 you, I don't even think you probably shouldn't just. You would have to be an idiot to think that that's how uh, women behave uh, realistically. But uh, so, but as I said, it's not a it's not a very good uh, representation of women. I although I don't think it was trying to be anyway. I mean, it's very Gilliam in the sense that like women are always like either the sex object or damsel in distress. Well, look. Uh, 
I don't think I don't I don't think you can use that as a justification for shit representation of female characters, though. Well, it, I think it's a fine justification, to be honest. Artists, 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 no, I artists completely disagree. Do whatever they want. I mean, it reminds me of, of uh, what's it? French Revenge, which I watched. The film that came out was it last year? Is it this called year? Revenge or just, is it a French it's, it's, film? It's called just called. Revenge. It's, it's a French film called Revenge. I'll just call it French Revenge because probably fucking twenty other films called Revenge as well. <laughs> um, just just to keep things simple, like I don't know the the, the there's the, there's like pretty much four characters in that film. Like the male characters, you know, they 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 they're pretty one they're pretty one note. That doesn't bother me because it's you know so it, it really is just one of these exploitationy revenge. Uh, films, so you like you know that that these three dudes are gonna do something terrible to this woman, and she's gonna get a revenge on them. That's all. That's all that's important. They don't need to have any depth to them because they're just gonna get fucking killed anyway. Yeah, but that's not what they're, they're not just the the female characters in this movie. They're quite central characters, and when you have especially an actress like Olga Kurilenko in the role, I don't as well, think so. I don't. I wouldn't like Olga Kurilenko in this car in in this role is essentially just a rancid horn dog that wants Adam Driver's dick. That is the that is the beginning and the end of her character. I don't think That's she's very vital. She's about as vital as as well, the what, producer. What about the young? What the, about yeah, the, the young, young girl's more? But then again, as I said, she just uses a prop. She practically just uses a prop. Yeah, but for the for amount of times that she's that, that she's shown in the movie, she should be more than that. She should have, and especially the way that she is treated. I in don't the, think she's sh- the way I that she's treated in the third act as well. When and the third act is really overblown, and they introduce this big yeah. Russian like it's very strange. Uh, this uh, weird Russian oligarch. Or yeah, whatever. and I'm like, what the fuck are we getting? In? And then the kind of stuff that she has to do in that is just painful to watch. Yeah, well, it's just weird. That's where it's like sort of. Version of the point of like I don't know, sort of weirdly surreal. Like um, I don't know. Um, that, that's when it gets re- the most. It gets the most Gilliam in the third act, and but I think the third act just goes on for way too long. Like it's a good setup, but it's just it's a bit self indulgent. I think. Yeah, it, it does feel a bit self indulgent. Although I don't think they spend too much time in the third act. Um, although you, you, it is it is very strange how. Things are presented because there's a well, there's a fictional castle. Um, no, not a fiction. Yeah, there's, a, there's a real castle. Don't, don't we don't need to say too much more. Just we don't need to get into detail because we still right. this film hasn't actually th- this movie is still in turmoil with its release because oh, Terry Gilliam enough. no has no longer has the rights to this film and we may never that's get to shame. see it again. Yeah, that's a shame. Well, for 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 what it is, I think it's quite good. I th- I think um, mm. I, I still think it's a very good it's film. Like the it's just film of the festival. I think it's quite good. Um, I think it's I one of the most of, fun films of the festival. Probably one of the most fun films. Oh, there's there's one film that I thought was much funner. Although um, I I think I just I don't know. I wish that uh, there would have been a more in depth. It's, it's weird me saying this because I'm it's like Gilliam. He doesn't really uh, think about this, uh, do this kind of stuff. But more of a I don't know in-depth look at himself. It's it's still mm. it still sort of hits home those themes like that that sort of uh, um, conflict between you know the the directors uh, what the director wants to do their creative control versus mm. the producer and in and Gilliam sort of fighting this you know I could I can just live in a reality and do yeah. terrible things uh, in the world or or mm. I can just you know just forget about the fantasy forget about trying to obtain it and just just become like a just a just a sheep, really. Yeah, sheep and of society. just kind of, and even Join with like, flock. even though like um Adam Driver is very clearly meant to be a kind of manifestation of um 
Terry Gilliam or like it's meant to be some representation still a bit of shallow. Terry Gilliam. But you can also say that with Don Quixote as well and like how, you know, being in this, immersed in this story and trying to get it's it. It's weird, like, like Don Quixote himself, I think it's more like metaphorically that, that creative part mm. of Terry Gilliam's mind like mm. he's the man, like manifestation of his creativity it, it could also be it could also just show how making this movie or like how a movie has ruined his, like almost like kind of ruined yeah, him yeah yeah or like driven him insane in a way you can see that with a lot of examples uh, yeah in the film and also just to add um, Adam Driver's character arc in this movie I really love mm. from, from where he starts out to where he ends up I think is like very fitting yeah I think it's a fine arc Although I, I, I like how they, I, I like how he handles uh, Don Quixote a bit more. I don't really want to spoil what happens yep. with him, but it's it's rather ambiguous whether or not it's Don Quixote or it's someone else. Mm. I would definitely recommend this though. If you do get a chance to see it, definitely see it. Mm. And with that comes the end of part one. This is now going to be a three-part myth wrap-up. Uh, we have recorded the second half, but uh, Eric had to leave. So we will be, we'll be recording part three on Friday, and I will hopefully get that up by the weekend. Uh, I will get part two up very shortly. I'm in, the, I'm in the process of editing that right now. But thank you for listening to part one, and stay tuned for parts two and three. And if you like this podcast, you know, Subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a nice five-star review on iTunes. Give, look, follow us or subscribe to us on, Sound, on SoundCloud. I can't remember which if you follow. I believe you follow people on SoundCloud. And give this episode a like if you enjoyed it. On the SoundCloud, all of our social media links are just on the right-hand side of the screen. But you know what? If you don't listen on SoundCloud, if you listen to this Another Bloody Movie podcast on any other kind of podcasting uh, network or hosting site, um, you know... Give us a like on our Facebook page. You can follow our Instagram at Another Bloody Movie Pod. You can follow us on Twitter at AB Movie Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter and my personal Instagram, both at SeanHub underscore. That is S E A N H U B underscore. You can also follow me on the Stardust app, which is at Sean Coates with a capital S and a capital C. Download the Stardust app on Google Play or the App Store. It's a really fun app and I have done a whole bunch. Every single film I saw at MIF, I have done a Stardust reaction to. So if you can't wait until the other episode to see what I thought about something and you only want to hear me talk about it for about 30 seconds as opposed to about five or five or six minutes, download the Stardust app Follow me and watch my reactions to the films I saw at MIF. And if you want to see some of my very short form written reviews, you can head over to my letterbox, which is just letterbox.com forward slash Sean Coates. And also check out my reviews on moviebabble.com or moviebabblereviews.com. Um, you can read reviews from me and a whole bunch of other really cool writers over there. I have, so far for the Melbourne International Film Festival, I have done little mini written reviews for a number of the films we spoke about on this episode, including Damsel, Leave No Trace, Burning, a whole bunch of other films. Um, and also, my full written review for Climax is now up, so make sure you give that a read. And if you enjoy it, send me some feedback. And you can do that by sending me an email at anotherbloodymoviepod at gmail.com. Thanks very much for listening, guys. Stay tuned for parts two and three coming in the next couple of days. Until then, we'll see you later.